I want to talk about, I've entitled this on Holy Fire. Um, I began this, uh, preparing this message probably about four or five years ago. And that's what I do. Um, Sometimes you get certain thoughts and you write notes down and, and sometimes when I study, I'm reminded of them, I go back and I kind of, you know, it's like one pastor told me, he said, you kind of let it simmer. And you add things and you think of things. And I started this about four or five years ago. But um, um, it's, it's, it's been a blessing. It was a blessing to, uh, to put it together, even though it's been that long ago. Ephesus, now we've been studying some things in Sabbath school about Paul's uh, min, uh, missionary journeys and stuff. And Ephesus was a city of Lydia. It's located on the west coast of Asia Minor. It was a junction city, uh, which means it was it was on a trade route. And the trade route between East and, and West Asia, mainly. Um, and because it was such an important commercial center, there was also a large population in the area. That's what you find. You know, before we had the railroads in this country, and before we had really the interstate system or roads roads weren't very good and so travel was slow and people gathered around some of the fastest travel was on the rivers so if you look at a map of the united states especially from the east to to you know the midwest mainly and and, you know all the way through the country as far as that goes a lot of the major cities are on waterways and so they, they gathered a large population. This, that's what this was here at Ephesus. Thousands of people uh, came to take part in the festivities that took place. It was actually considered kind of a resort area. You think of the United States, there are certain cities that are considered like resorts, you know, where it's tourists and, and things. It was also a religious center in that part of the world. They worshipped Diana. Have you ever heard of Diana? Diana of the Ephesians. In fact, history says that the people built a great amphitheater. This amphitheater was 495 feet in diameter. Now that sounds large. You know, 495 feet. It would hold about 14... Well, let me me take that back. It held about 25,000 people. Considering some of the stadiums of today, that's not very big. But some of you are familiar with Mackey Arena over here at Purdue University. It seats about 14,000. So this amphitheater there in Ephesus was about twice the size of Mackey Arena. But on some occasions, there would be over 100,000 people that not only filled that arena there in Ephesus, but surrounded it. Because it kind of on the back of the amphitheater, it kind of went up a, a slope of a hill. And they would just circle this whole thing. 100,000 people. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. And they would, they would gather around there and they would be shouting, they would be worshiping the goddess Diana. It was to this great center of Ephesus, this great center of heathen worship, that Apollos, have you heard of him? Apollos, he was an Alexandrian Jew, he came to preach the gospel. Apollos had been converted in Alexandria, Egypt, and had also received, well, he received his education there. 
Um, it was recognized at that time by people all over the world, Alexandria was, as the center of learning for all the earth. They had a library there, the world's largest library. Now, this is back in that time when you had scrolls and you didn't have books like we have in the bookshelf here. And that was one of the biggest draws for people seeing. And so uh, even the school you'll find the school of the rabbis there in Jerusalem, they would send their students to this heathen Alexandria city to the school of the University of Alexandria to learn, to be educated. We see some very similarities, um, similar things today, don't we? You know, so learning at the feet of Jesus, you go to a worldly university and learn. Now there's nothing necessarily wrong with learning a trade, is there? We've got to be very careful, don't we? But uh, Apollos, he was educated there in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, in fact, when the rabbis, uh, I got to thinking about that, and you often wonder, usually around Christmas time, when you think of the birth of Jesus, you know, most people are thinking of that, even though he wasn't born on that day, but people think about that. How is it that they didn't know that Jesus was going to be born? How was it he came to his own people and the vast majority of them because their leaders were educated in Alexandria, Egypt. They were educated under worldly standards. They got away from the scriptures and the prophecies. See? They didn't know much about the prophecies concerning the Messiah and the other scriptures. This worldly university was, was very famous. I try to think of, you know, what are some of the famous universities? People have heard of Harvard. People have heard of Yale. I mean, if you go to Harvard or Yale... People esteem you highly, don't they? That's what Alexandria was, the university there. And so a person, you know, who uh, was educated there was accepted of someone of, they were looked at as someone of great importance, you know. Oh, he was educated in Alexandria, see. If you could trace your education back to Alexandria, uh, you were very highly esteemed. And so when Apollos came to the, this heathen city of Ephesus, he was well received. See, because he was educated at Alexandria. He was placed actually in a great position to preach the gospel. There was no question about uh, coming out to hear this particular man preach because he was such a learned man. Right? Now the Bible says many fine things about Apollos. He was fervent of spirit, it says. He knew his Bible very well. Um, he preached convincing sermons. He was a powerful preacher. He could sway people by the way he spoke. In fact, everything looked good for Apollos when he came to Ephesus. But there's another thing we need to know about Apollos. And apparently, as you study it out, his knowledge and learning concerning Jesus Christ was mostly theoretical because he didn't know Jesus. In other words, when he spoke, it was not with the power and the spirit of true conviction. You see what I'm saying? There was no working of conversion in the hearts of the people he was trying to reach because, see, he didn't know about Jesus. He knew the theories about the Messiah, but he didn't know about Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Now, they didn't have many Christians in Ephesus. They just had a little handful. And among them was, was Aquila and Priscilla. Have you heard of them? Mm -hmm. They were earnest Christians. 
And when they heard this man, Apollos, preach that night, they knew something was missing. And after the sermon, the Bible says that they took Apollos aside and instructed him more perfectly in the way of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? These people knew Jesus better than he did. Even though he'd been through the university and he graduated with all the honors, you know, and he had all the recognition, he had all the certificates on the wall, he had the little initials past his name, you know what I'm saying? Here were two laborers who knew Jesus more than he did. That's something for us to take note of. And so, what they do? They sat down and they told him more than he ever knew about Jesus and Nazareth. <laughs> he never knew it before. Now, you'd really think that Apollos would turn the city upside down after getting the right education from those Christians, wouldn't you? I mean, I would. Oh, they've enlightened me. I mean, you'd just imagine that hundreds of people would be converted as he stood up to preach. But the results were apparently really very, very meager. Almost nothing. And after a little while, Apollos, he moved on. He went on over to Corinth to preach. And a short time after he had left, Paul came along. He was visiting the churches. And he started to look up the church which was in Ephesus. Now, I don't know what Paul expected to find when he went to Ephesus, but I know one thing, he had a hard time finding the church. (laughs) It was located down in an obscure section of the city. It was in an upper room, history tells us. And there were just 12 members when Paul arrived. doesn't sound like much, does it? 12 people can turn the world upside down, though, if they're converted. Isn't that true? When Paul walked into that little room where the church was meeting, immediately he sensed that something was missing. He didn't find the spirit. He didn't find the spark, the power, and the enthusiasm that Jerome talks about. When you come into the Lord's house and he praises the Lord that he's with people who love Jesus and he can see it in them. Paul didn't see that. See? The testimony that these people were giving was just empty to him. There was a barren feeling about it all, and Paul knew it. And without any preliminaries, he got right down to the heart of the trouble, and he stood up to preach. And his first question just went right to the heart of those people. We find it in Acts chapter 19. Right at the very beginning of Acts 19. Acts 19, verse 1 says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus, finding certain disciples. He said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? That's the question. Boom. Have you received the Holy Ghost? And they said unto him, What? We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. That's an interesting response, isn't it? And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. See? He's going to be coming. These people didn't know. He's going to be coming. That's what they were baptizing her, John's baptism. 
And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, what happened? The Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. Now, beloved, John baptized, of course, in the waters of repentance. That's what we're being told there, right? Teaching them about Christ who was to come. These people knew all about the Messiah. I mean, they understood the prophecies. They knew about the Messiah and what He would be like when He did appear. That's what they knew. But here they were living, this is 20 years past Pentecost, roughly. About 20 years past Pentecost. And they didn't know a thing about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know a thing about it. They'd never been instructed uh, at all in the way God had visited the church after He ascended back to heaven. And so Paul, Paul didn't chide them. He didn't rebuke them. He began to tell them and teach them about the, the reception of the Holy Spirit which had come on the believers at Jerusalem. And all through the Christian world of that day, he began to share the truth of the Holy Spirit with them. Now, as I was studying this and going through this, it reminds me of something I see all too often today, and, I, and I'm thinking you probably do too. You know, too many people... They really fail to grasp the blessings of a spirit-filled life. Because, at least in my opinion, I guess I would say, in my discernment, they're too easily satisfied in spiritual things. They somehow believe that baptism is the object of the Christian life. And that this is everything that God wants to do for them. You just got to get dunked and that's it. Um, and, but I want to tell you today that that's only the beginning of God wants to do for us. That's the beginning of our walk. That's the marriage. You know, you still have the honeymoon and the rest of your married life. Right? That's just the beginning. Too many people, though, they stop right there at the bank of baptism and they want to stay in that spot. They feel that God has come near to bless them, that, that maybe this is all that the Christian life is intended to be, but it's not true. I run into this um, too often, really. You know, If we were to dare to go on out to the deep things of God, I'm finding in my walk that He has tremendous and much more blessings for us. If we would just believe and continue to walk. And that was the burden of Paul's message to, to those Christians there in Ephesus. They were spiritually dead as far as he was concerned because they, they didn't have the fruits of the Spirit, because they didn't have that mighty power of God that operates through them as He wanted to operate through them. He didn't discern it from them. Now, let me ask you something. And this is for anybody who can see me or hear my voice. Suppose Paul came to visit our church or he came to visit your church. I mean, what would he have to say to us? Suppose he came on Sabbath morning and he, he felt the spirit of our church and he took the pulse of our spiritual life. I mean, I just wonder, beloved, what, quiet, what kind of a uh, question would he ask us? I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. 
You think we might squirm a little bit like those people in Ephesus probably did? I think I think I would. <laughs> you, know. you think Paul would say to us, listen, haven't you received the Holy Spirit yet? Are we living like Christians should in the time of the end? The time that we're living in? It's good questions. And I'm not just asking you. I mean, I ask myself these things. I'm going to share with you from the book we have been studying out of, Acts of the Apostles, uh, page 284. It says, There are today many as ignorant of the Holy Spirit's work upon the heart as were those believers in Ephesus. Yet no truth is more clearly taught in the Word of God. Prophets and apostles have dwelt upon this theme. Christ Himself calls our attention to the growth of the vegetable world as an illustration of the agency of His Spirit in sustaining spiritual life. The sap of the vine, ascending from the root, is diffused to the branches, sustaining growth and producing blossoms and fruit. So the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Savior, pervades the soul, renews the motives and affections, and brings even the thoughts into obedience to the will of God, enabling the receiver to bear the precious fruit of holy deeds. As a people, we ought to be much further along in our Christian life than we really are. I mean, that's just my observation. And I include myself in that. We ought to be closer to the kingdom of heaven than we are. And maybe Paul would speak to us with the very language of heaven and stir us up a little bit. Help us to realize maybe how dead and barren we really are. I mean, in, in comparison um, to what we ought to be, considering really the time in which we're living, any time for that matter, but especially our time, nothing in this world will compensate for the lack of the Holy Spirit. Nothing. You believe that? Think about that. We can know the Bible from cover to cover. We can teach the prophecies accurately. We can communicate with people convincingly. But that's not enough, is it? That's what Apollos was doing. See? We must have that power in our lives to bear witness for Christ. And that's what those people lacked. Just by our life, would be a witness. But if we don't have the Holy Spirit, our life isn't going to be a positive witness. We may teach things. We may know them up in our minds and, and, and be able to preach it. I can stand up here and tell you and share with you the truth, but if Jesus isn't living in my heart, that witness ain't going to go very far. What is lacking is the power of godliness in the life. You can have the knowledge, but if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you have no power to overcome and you're not going to be an effective witness. And this is what Paul saw there in Ephesus. And this was what Apollos' problem was at one time. From an inspirational and a devotional book, The Faith I Live By, it says, There are many who believe and profess to claim the Lord's promise. They talk about Christ and about the Holy Spirit yet receive no benefit. 
They do not surrender the soul to be guided and controlled by the divine agencies. It's a matter of surrender. She says, we cannot use the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is to use us. Through the Spirit, God works in His people to will and to do of His good pleasure. But many will not submit to this. They want to manage themselves. This is why they do not receive the heavenly gift. Only to those who wait humbly upon God, who watch for His guidance and grace, is the Spirit given. The power of God awaits their demand and reception. Isn't that interesting? The power of God awaits their demand and reception. Those who have submitted themselves to Christ. God has all power in heaven. Didn't Jesus say, I have all power that's been given unto me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Is that what he said? She says, this promised blessing claimed by faith brings all other blessings in its train. It is given according to the riches of the grace of Christ and He is ready to supply every soul according to the capacity to receive. we got to work on our capacity to receive. When I say work on it, I'm talking about exercising faith. Have you received the Holy Spirit? (laughs) That was Paul's question. That question divides, doesn't it? It draws the line. It makes the boundary between two classes in the church I'm talking about. On one side, you find people who acknowledge Christ as as the Lord who forgives them their sin and who holds out to them the hope of heaven. That's one side. But there on the other side, you have another group who know Jesus as the Lord over the power of sin. And He comes in as a living presence into their heart. Friends, now there's a difference. There's a difference. A vast world of difference between these two classes. Some people have come along to minister unto the baptism of water and to merely an outward cleansing, an outward reformation of the life, a moral reformation. And that's very good. Don't get me wrong. That's good. I'm not going to criticize anybody who who changes particular ways of their life or their conduct and their attitudes in a positive way. Why would I? In a positive way. But i got to tell you, friends, that there is a deeper, more spiritual work than merely washing away sin by the water. That's the first step. Paul talked about a burning fire of the Holy Spirit that would come in and permeate and cleanse and purify the heart and life, the innermost part of a person's being. Isn't that where Jesus said? You wash all the cups and everything on the outside, but it's what's inside. And when that work of transformation is taking place on the inside, the question of conduct and of our outward actions, that's going to be taken care of. Because if Jesus lives inside, it's going to be seen outside. You believe that? And if we have been changed in the heart, if we've been converted by the Spirit of God, then our life is going to be all right on the outside as well as on the inside. Throughout the last few years, we've taken a close look at 
revival subjects and reformation subjects many times. And as I've repeatedly said, all of that is going to be for naught if it's just a knowledge. If it's just knowledge. If it's just a change, uh, change for change's sake. I'm just going to change this habit. Because it's kind of a right habit. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all it is, it's going to be for naught. We have to be living Christians and not dead men walking. Jesus said to the leaders of, uh, of Israel, he, he called them whited sepulchers. You're all cleaned up and great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Dead men walking. And there are a lot of dead Christians walking around. Oh, they look all nice on the outside, but inside they're dead. This is what Paul found there at Ephesus. Too many Christians have not entered into this experience of the inward work. But they've settled for a cheap grace instead of the power to be an overcomer. Oh, friends, the church, you imagine? The church would be a blaze of light and power if everybody had the same experience that Paul's talking about. I mean, wouldn't you agree? If the church was filled with converted Christians, I dare say that the kingdom of God would be here already. Let's look at something John the Baptist said. Matthew 3. Verses 11 and 12. And this is, this is part of that baptism that, that uh, uh, those there at Ephesus were baptized with. They said we were baptized under John. And notice what John says. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is what? Mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with what? And what? And with fire. John was baptizing with what? Water. But he says, there's someone greater than me that's coming. I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoes. But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand, he says, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat. So he's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost with fire. They're going to become wheat and he's going to harvest them. You see? He's going to gather them into his garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. means you won't be able to put that fire out until it's done its work. So just like the work of fire is different from that of water, so the work of Jesus was to be mightier than the work of John. And it's this baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit which completes the actually completes the preliminary baptism of water. It's all part of the process. So you don't just stop on the bank with the water. It doesn't end there. And friends, that's our greatest need, I think, without question. And I say it without any reservation at all. Our greatest individual need is to be baptized of the Holy Spirit every day. Every day. We must allow the Holy Spirit to take the 
reformation, a revival, or reformation principles that we've learned and put them into practice under His guidance. We must be changed each day. You see, the Holy Spirit will take the the righteous things we have learned, which He has taught, because He's the one who inspired the Scriptures, isn't He? And help us to put them into practice if we are willing. The question is, are you willing? (laughs) Will you submit unreservedly to God? That's what Jesus says. That's what He asks. can't be partial. can't be a partial. You look at the old sanctuary service, there wasn't a partial. They didn't bring half a lamb to sacrifice. It takes the entire sacrifice. I believe the devil has robbed individuals of this experience for way too long. You know, Satan has two... Two main ways. I mean, he has a multitude of ways, but he has two main ways of operating as far as truth is concerned. Um, first, he'll try to cover up the truth. And, you know, he tries to cover it up as long as he can. He'll hide it. He'll keep it down. And finally, when it breaks out, and he can't do anything about the publication of the truth, you know, it's gotten out. He'll then resort to twisting it and distorting it. Try to lead people into fanaticism, extremism. Or the other ditch, presumption. You basically have two ditches. One's legalism and one's presumption. We want to walk down the middle of the road. (laughs) Now just think for a moment about justification. Justification by faith. During uh, the Dark Ages, you know, many centuries, 1,200 years, during the Dark Ages, the church didn't know about this truth, justification by faith. They just lived by the law of the church, people did. Whatever the church said, they tried to live by it because they believed that was the Word of God. They tried to fulfill the letter of what the church told them to do and that was salvation to them. And I praise God that He's a merciful and just God. He judges us based on what we know and had the ability to know. Were they filled with the Holy Spirit? Were they converted? Even though they might not have had all the knowledge of the Scriptures, we'll see them in heaven. But that's what they did. But one day this searching, sinking monk, his name was Martin Luther, he was crawling up the stairs in deep penitence. He was doing his penance. He was thinking about this. And suddenly, like a burst of light, this great truth that Paul said flooded his heart. It's found in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Basically, it's found in verse 17, but I'll back up to verse 16. Because Paul is saying here, he's been, he's come to know Christ. He met Christ on the road to Damascus. He's a changed person. He's one with Christ. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the what? power of God unto salvation to everyone that works in penitence and climbs up the stairs on their knees. doesn't say that, does it? Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And that word believeth means making a commitment to, not a, just a mental assent. First, you've got to have the mental assent that it's true, but that's got, it's got to go farther than that. You've got to agree, that's the truth, and I'm committing myself to it. 
That's what that word, that Greek word there, for believeth means. We've got too many preachers today that says all you've got to do is believe Jesus. That's just the mental ascent. And you don't see no change in their life. It's because they haven't committed. <laughs> see? So Paul said, he said, I'm not ashamed. It is the power, the gospel of Christ is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now look at verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. No, from keeping the Sabbath day to paying tithes and offerings to... It doesn't say that, does it? It says from faith to faith. But you do those things. You keep the Sabbath. You return a faithful tithe and offering. You love your neighbors. You don't kill. You, don't, you do that by faith. Then what it says? As it is written, what? The just shall live by faith. And so, here's Martin Luther. It hits him. He's a monk. He loves God. But something's not right. The Holy Spirit's pricking his heart like it was Paul. Something's not right. He's climbing. His knees are bloody. He's climbing up the stairs on his knees in penitence for his sins. And the Lord whispers in his ear, the just shall live by faith. So he begins to write it. He nails it on the church over at Wittenberg. Part of his 95 thesis to the church. Try to bring reformation to the church. And he forced this wonderful message out into the open. People knew now that works does not save you. You're saved by grace through faith. It is that faith that produces the good works. See? The holy deeds that, I, that we read earlier. Oh, but when the devil saw that the truth had come out of hiding at last, what's he do? He sees that everybody's hearing this truth. So he starts twisting it. And he perverts it and he distorts it and he convinces people that, all right, that's fine. He says, it's all grace and faith. And you don't have to worry about the law of God. You can throw it out the window now. You don't have to worry about the law now. Just believe. Just have faith and you're all right. Just believe. See, just have that mental ascent. And so, my friends, the pendulum swung from way over here on the left is one to way over here on the right. From one ditch into the other ditch, see? That's what he tries to do. He went from legalism to presumption. And the devil doesn't care which way you go just so, just so you're in one of the ditches. As long as you'll get in some rut and refuse to walk in a balanced Christian life, that's fine with him. Now, think about this doctrine of the Holy Spirit that Paul is telling them about. The church didn't speak about it and preach about it in those early centuries, but then the truth burst into light and the people started talking about the Holy Spirit and studying about the Holy Spirit. People began to understand about the operation of God through the Holy Spirit. And so the devil got busy. Now the truth's out there, so what's he do? Remember? He starts to distort it. He starts to twist it. He wanted the people to go overboard. And so he brought in fanaticism. He made thousands and thousands of people think that the Holy Spirit was just an emotional feeling. 
an emotional high, and nothing more. So many Christians today, they go to church to experience an emotional high. And they believe that's the Spirit of God pouring out on them. The devil's got them right where he wants them. And so in these days, there have been great fanatical demonstrations under the name of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the whole doctrine has been brought under reproach and condemnation because of the extremism that's been inspired by Satan. Now, beloved, many Christians are not the type to be deceived by a lot of strange mysticism like this. Some of them see it and say there's something not right with that. You know? But another danger is this, because remember the pendulum swings both ways. Another danger is this, that we will shy away from the true manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And if we stand in any danger today, I believe that's it. We go to the other extreme. We're liable to harden ourselves against the fanaticism and against this emotionalism, and thus shut out the true Spirit of God who's trying to come in and work in our lives. There's really two extremes that we have to guard against here. We must not let feelings and emotions be the criteria of our religious experience. If we did, then we'd be led away from the Bible as our rule of faith. On the other hand, we have to accept the fact that God does work and speak to us at times through our emotions. We were created with them. Don't misunderstand me. Love, joy, peace, those are all emotional fruits. Those are emotional fruits of a true religious experience, aren't they? Do you not experience joy in the Lord? Peace of heart? Right? Love? The thing is, they must not be the test of truth. See? Because often people are very happy and emotional while following a false doctrine or even a pagan religion. So, we don't test the truth by our emotions. We test the truth by the Word of God. But we can't go to the other extreme and completely become unemotional beings. You see what I'm saying? I believe the church needs this power today much more than it did in those early days. we got thousands more of the devil's uh, traps to work with and to fight against. The world has now become... I'm saying now become. It's been happening for a long, long time. Uh, a friend with the church. <laughs> Jesus said, uh, you know, the scriptures say uh, to be a friend of the world is enmity with God. And the church is a friend to the world. The devil has clothed his snares with religious garments. And he's wormed his way into the church itself. And that's why we must be on guard. We can't fight this battle with our human strength. We just can't do it. So that's why I say we need the Holy Spirit now more than than ever. 
when you look at the condition we find ourselves in, there is the strange spirit of secularization working right in our own midst. Right in this country, you've got a blurring of the of sexual identities. Everything's secularized. It's socialist. You know, socialists don't believe in God. There is no God. The state, essentially, is God. <laughs> and the state will give you what you need. And everybody gets the same. You see what I'm saying? Everybody gets a car, Sean. Not just you. That's the socialist, ungodly way of looking at it. But God provides for His people what they need when they need it. You see what I'm saying? But we can see this going on today. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Do we live in a world of iniquity? Is it abounding? Does it surround us? Absolutely. So, a form of godliness has been growing and developing among God's people. And you have to wonder... What influence have these things had upon our own lives? I mean, do you ever take that into consideration? I would think Christians would. When we're surrounded here by the spirit of the world, by the carnal things that our eyes have to see and our ears have to hear, is that making some impact on our Christian life? Are we becoming weak through the constant pressures, this is what I'm saying, of carnal, fleshly world that's pressing on us from all sides. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to keep us and protect us right now, don't we? The members need it. The ministers need it. We ought to be praying for it every single day. Friends, the hour is late. And unless the church arouses from this slumber, if she doesn't wake up, then multitudes are going to shuffle their way right on through the world, and they're going to fall right in line to accept the mark of the beast. So it's going to happen. I mean, we're living in a time that God wants to finish His work. And I'm afraid God's people have not made themselves available of His power to do that. And as we draw close to the end of the world, you know, we talked about Apollos. I began talking about Apollos. And the world looked at him as highly educated and such. We come closer to the end of the world, you know that uh, there will be fewer and fewer great men working in the cause of God. Our scripture reading sums that up, really. Zechariah 4 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It won't be men with all kinds of degrees. The men who have great theological training that, that God will be able to use. It's not going to be them. Humble people will come to the front. Humble. Consecrated laymen like Aquila and Priscilla. They knew Jesus personally. They'll be able to explain about the working of the Holy Spirit. Some of these great theologians, it's amazing to me. I've I've run into some. <laughs> I mean, you see some of them on TV and you can follow along in your Bible and if you have a spiritual discernment and know Jesus, you can say, that's not right. 
Isn't that true? Amen. And, and the thing is, I've spoken to some and I've sent some letters and they come back and I'm dismissed. <laughs> uh, you, you don't know. You didn't go to the seminary. And you don't know how often on my knees I praise God for that. I thank God for that. Because when I was younger, I thought, boy, wouldn't it have been nice to go through that. But then I see the false Christs that are in the seminary that are taught. The errors. I praise God that I didn't go through that. I praise God that as a people we can come to Jesus personally one-on-one. We can come to the cross ourselves. We can come and learn from the school of Christ and not Alexandria, not Harvard, not Dallas Theological Seminary. (laughs) You see? Now don't get me wrong. Schools have their place. But the problem is, who's leading the school? Is Christ leading the school? Or is Satan leading the school? But it's going to be people like these tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla. They'll be able to speak with authority because the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is going to attend them. And we must have that power, beloved. We must receive that baptism. You know, I think about, you know, this is a year of anniversaries. <laughs> My wife and I's 25th anniversary. My 12th anniversary as a pastor. And it's my experience that it's not hard work that breaks a man down in the service of God. It's not hard work. It's working without the power that's going to wear a man down and kill him. It's not hard work. It's not long hours that we need to put in necessarily either. That shouldn't be the case. We just need to yoke up with that great source of all strength and do His bidding. He supplies what we need to succeed. And we need what only He can supply. (laughs) I'll tell you, from my own experience and from experiences I've talked to other ministers, I'll tell you that it is much more draining physically, emotionally, and spiritually to work on behalf of half-hearted, half-converted Laodicean Christians than it is anyone else. And that's just a fact. I mean, Jesus said it in Revelation 3. He said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You can't work with somebody like that. I mean, we are. You try to reach all people. But they're the hardest. They're the ones that are that drain you. If somebody's cold, they come around and say, I'm not interested. You can move on. Shake the dust off your feet. Jesus said, and go on. The ones that are hot, man, you yoke up with them and you're doing the work. The ones that are back and forth, 
They're the ones that take the most care, that take the most time, that take the most strength. They drain the Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to speak out of my mouth. Jesus is the one who said it. They're the hardest ones. Why? He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee, if they'll listen, to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. What is that white raiment? What's that symbolize? Christ's righteousness, his works, isn't it? And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. What is that anointing? Isn't that of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that gold tried in the fire? Gold representing God, the character of God, the righteousness of Christ, the Holy Spirit. You see the Godhead in this, what he's saying here? Do you know how far it was from Egypt over to the land of Canaan? How many days travel do you think it would require for that trip. Does anybody know? Eleven days. Eleven days. That's not very long, is it? It's less than two weeks. Eleven days. In eleven days they could have completed that journey from the land of bondage to the land of promise. But how long did the children of Israel wander in that wilderness? Forty years. Forty long years they stayed out there just doing... Basically going around in circles. Going around in circles, wasting their time because they didn't have faith to enter into the promised land. Now here we are, still plodding along in this old world. Us. We should have been in the kingdom of God long before this. But we're still here. Just as the children of Israel were still there. And sometimes it seems that we're getting duller every day. We need to be shaken up. We need to make ourselves more available for God. We need to shut our minds to these temporary things of the world and dwell more on spiritual things. We need the fire of God. Why is it? Have you ever wondered when you read about the apostles and you read and especially the book of Acts, and you see what was going on, how God was blessing, and they were... And I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes they were stoned, they were thrown into prison, they were, but they sang psalms while they're in jail. Why is it that we don't seem to have what those early Christians possessed? I mean, I read about the missionary journeys of Paul, the sacrifices those people made, the zealous investment of their time and money that was made, I don't think we understand much about sacrifice today. Not in this country, anyway. We don't understand too much about the investment of our very lives in the cause of Jesus, do we? What does it mean to make a sacrifice anyway? I mean, think about that. Our spiritual poverty is very tragic. And really, it's inexcusable. <laughs> 
when unlimited resources are waiting for our demand and reception in heaven. Our demand. That's interesting. Still, we're not doing the work and we're not living the kind of holy lives that God wants us to. You know, it does cost something to be a Christian, doesn't it? Isn't it supposed to cost something to be a Christian? Somehow I wish Paul could be here today and make his eloquent spiritual appeal to us. Jesus said in Luke 12.49, He said, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? That's an interesting statement. What did He mean? He came to send fire. What does that mean? And remember that John said, He's going to baptize you with Holy Ghost and with fire. Then in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit descended upon those disciples, what did it appear as? Tongues of fire. Isn't that what it appeared as? Have you ever wondered about that? What about fire? Fire is a consuming force. It permeates. It consumes. It's a mighty purifying agent. And this divine fire is going to penetrate into the life of any individual. It will consume. Let's think of some things. I've thought of some things about fire, and I'll try to wrap it up here quickly. Some things that fire does. And how perhaps the Holy Spirit does the same thing. Fire will illuminate, won't it? We had a we burned a little campfire. I mean we had a fire the other night until dark and everything was dark, but it illuminated. Brings light, doesn't it? Fire illuminates. Does the Holy Spirit illuminate? When it reaches into our heart, it will illuminate and it will reveal every hidden sin. It doesn't just bring us the truth of God, it brings us the truth about ourselves. Every little mark of evil is going to be revealed under the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's His job. He's going to show us our true self. He's going to illuminate. And when that fire comes in to reveal, sin becomes very important, or it should. And so we're moved to come and confess to the Lord and to go and confess to our neighbor that we've wronged. It reveals things that we're embarrassed over, that we're ashamed of. So it it illuminates and it works with the power to purify and change us more and more into a righteous being. Something else that fire does, it consumes. It burns up sin. Will God do that for the individual? In Malachi we read about it. Malachi verses 2 and 3. But who may abide the day of His coming? And who shall stand when He appeareth? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. What offering is that? Ourselves. You know how they refine metal. They put it in, they bring it up to a hot temperature and everything other than the pure metal is burned off. God's going to do that so He can see. When a refiner does it, He does it how pure... The more He burns it, the hotter, the more dross is burned off, the more pure that metal is, and the greater the reflection 
then the refiner can see himself in it. That's what God's doing with us. Burning off the sin so he can see his reflection more and more in us. It's the sanctification process. From the book The Desire of Ages, in all who submit to his power, the Spirit of God will consume sin. But if men cling to sin, they become identified with it. Then the glory of God, which destroys sin, must destroy them. So if we cling to sin, essentially we remain attached to the dross and we're consumed by the fire. Something else that fire does, it warms, doesn't it? I'm going quickly now. It warms and cheers. I don't know too many people who don't like a campfire. There's something about it. It's settling. It's cheerful. It brings warmth. It got kind of cool the night we had it and everybody moved up closer to the fire. Right? Sin is consumed by it. Other things are simply made permanent. Fire is used to um, glaze a kettle or a piece of pottery. It hardens the outside, makes it permanent. So God's going to use the Holy Spirit to to um, settle us, you could say, to harden us into the likeness of Christ against sin. See, He won't be able to permeate anymore. Something else, fire can spread rapidly. Have you ever heard of the Chicago Fire? The Great Chicago Fire, 1871? In just a few hours, 17,000 buildings were burned to the ground. Over 100,000 people were homeless in just a matter of hours. Fire attracts attention too. It can be seen from a distance. So when the fire of God is alive in us, we can spread the word rapidly. People are going to see that we're Christians from a distance. Right? I wanted to share this with you. I'll close up with this because this is really kind of neat. I'm kind of a history buff and I run across these things from time to time. And this is really interesting. There's a very good lesson in this. Long ago in Dalmatia, and that's on the eastern coast of the Adriatic Sea, and this was a long time ago, houses were built out of uh, bitum... Well... It was limestone, but it was bitumous limestone. The limestone that they would bring in was saturated with this. Do you know what bitumen is? It's like pitch or tar. So you had limestone that had this pitch and tar in it. And it was a very unpleasant building material to deal with. If you've ever dealt with like, have you ever patched a roof with roofing cement? It's basically tar and pitch. And you get it on your finger and pretty soon it's like all over your body. It's black and it stinks and it's, you know. And these guys are building with this limestone that's full of this, this pitch. And there was a, of course it stunk, and the pores of that limestone would always seep that black tarry substance on to whoever touched it. But nevertheless, they continued that work and they laid the foundations of of this limestone and the walls were made of this limestone and they even made the roof of the building of that limestone and after it was all finished you know what they did? They got the building finished it's got limestone and it's this limestone out of the pores of the rock is oozing this picture you know what they did when they got done building the building? 
They struck a match and lit the building on fire. And the fire would burn and it'd suck out of all the pores that of that stone, all the bitumen, all the pitch. All of it would simply burn away and when it was all burned, the beautiful snow-white limestone was left. I mean, the rock didn't burn. (laughs) And then they had a strong, fireproof, sweet-smelling house in which to live. Isn't that remarkable? Now listen. God wants to burn in our lives right now. Through the Holy Spirit, He wants to burn all the pitch of sin out of our life. And when He gets done with that burning process, what's going to be left? A person with a shiny white robe. Because they're going to have the character of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful illustration? Are you willing to give all to Jesus right now? Do you want the fire of the Holy Spirit to reveal and consume your sins, leaving you with the white robes of Christ's righteousness? You have to make a commitment to God, beloved. Don't just say yes and go about your your business as usual or nothing's going to change. Some people come to me and say, it doesn't seem like God's answering my prayers. Maybe He can answer them. Have you ever thought of that? The issue isn't with God, you see. It's not that God doesn't want to answer your prayers. But the issue isn't with God. The issue is with who? It's with us. Do you keep falling over and over again? The issue isn't with God. God requires a complete giving of yourself to Him and then the Holy Spirit can pour upon you power to defeat the devil. Your prayers will be heard and you'll be on holy fire. (laughs) Do you want to be on holy fire right now? I do. If you do, let's pray together. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We humbly ask, Father, in the name of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon each and every one of us. That that fire will come into our hearts and burn, and burn out sin. Will consume it. Will purify us. Will harden us against sin. Will provide for us that white robe of righteousness that Jesus provides. We thank You so much for this gift. We accept it. Help us to Receive this gift each and every day so that we may bring glory to You. The people can see us from a distance that we are a Christian, that we love Jesus with our whole hearts, and that we can spread this message around that those who can accept it will accept it. We thank You for the Sabbath day that we can rest from our labors. We pray, Lord, that You will continue to bless us on this most holy day that we may gain the spiritual rest and physical rest we need to do good work in the coming week. We thank you so much for Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. We pray in His name. Amen.